Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. I took time away from Dragon Quest XI to be with you today. I'm, that is a huge sacrifice. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I do what I can for all of you people. We're not too long away from the Dragon Quest XI uh, review. And how many hours are you in at this point? Uh, I, I'm teetering on 60, I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we're not allowed to talk about it, unfortunately. I would have loved to have been able to do an actual proper preview, but yeah, I guess you'll just have to wait for the review that's going to be coming out next week. Yeah, you will. Sorry about that. Yes, uh, I've been playing it a little bit on and off myself. Uh, I've been getting slowly but surely kind of working my way. Another thing that we have to worry about right now is PAX West, which mm. is coming up next week. Yeah, big exciting times for us. Yeah, the Axel Blood God is going to have a panel. It's going to be about Mass Effect, and Austin Walker is going to be there. Nadia is going to be there. Former uh, Blood God Gas Vision Game Apocalypse host Matthew Allen will be there, and it'll be a and I will be there, of course. I mean, duh. Yeah. And it'll be a good old time. And we're going to try and record that. And we're going to record that. And we're going to make it the podcast. Uh, hopefully, I, apparently, I can plug straight into the soundboard. So hopefully, oh, the quality ends up being okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm nervous about the whole thing, but we'll we'll have fun. So I was originally I originally had a guest on to talk about Deus Ex, which is the uh, the next entry in our top twenty five list. But would you believe that I have recorded two segments with them, and both of them are unusable? Oh no! What ha- I didn't know about that. What happened? Just uh, just audio glitches, desyncs, uh, all kinds of problems. It's really Ooh. unfortunate. So. Nadia, hi. We're going to talk about <laughs> Deus Ex today. I know it's not really your jam, but maybe you can learn a thing today. Oh, yeah. I, I know about the game by, for sure. Like, it was it was before my time. You know what I mean? Like, I by the time I got a PlayStation 2, it was too late for me to really get into Deus Ex. Plus, I didn't really play it on PC or Mac, so it, it went over my head a bit. So, but before, before we get to that, I have Mike Williams on the show to talk about uh, his big crazy huge world of warcraft definitive inside story history retrospective thing which is currently on the site uh, he's going to talk a little bit about uh, you know kind of what he learned about world of warcraft from working on that and also talk about battle of azeroth so let's jump over to that and then nadia and you and i will come back and we will do our deus ex uh, top 25 rpg countdown Okay, I'm here with our reviews editor, Mike Williams. And Mike, you just posted on Friday a tremendously huge World of Warcraft history, the inside story of 20 years of development. That is, that is a lot of uh, that is a lot of development time. And you like your feature clocked in at over 10,000 words. Uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. Are you alive over there? Are you okay? Uh, I am alive. I am okay. That the day I was writing, like putting everything together, I was not okay. That was like I totally many hours. That. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really amazing, and I, I mean, this must have been kind of your dream feature because Mike, we talked about this on our top twenty-five RPG countdown when we did World of Warcraft. But you are a big World of Warcraft fan. You got to write the story. Uh, this is one of my two dream features. My other one is for my other big favorite game, and that would be Assassin's Creed. Mm. If I could get the full Assassin's Creed story across all of the games, that would be 
that would probably be longer and and much worse. <laughs> I, I would I would read that. I mean, maybe that's something that we should do next year. But anyway, you traced the entire history of World of Warcraft from the very earliest days through the beta into vanilla, all the way through, uh, you know, Cataclysm and Wrath of the Lich King, all the way up until the present day, and. As someone who has followed this series intimately over the years, I'm curious, what did you learn that was particularly interesting? Probably, let's see, the biggest bits for me were probably Rob Pardo talking sort of about the early structure of World of Warcraft development. Because like a lot of people, I actually didn't know about Alan Adam. Polygon did a story about him when he came back to the company, I believe it was last year. But otherwise, not a lot of people really knew who he was, and apparently he was the driving force behind World of Warcraft in the very beginning. So that was an, an interesting story to me. And then the other thing I, I really thought was interesting, and he was quite candid when I was talking to him in our interview, was Greg Street the reason he left Blizzard? Because he's a very talkative kind of guy. He's the kind of developer that wants to really sit down and talk with his community. And that's not always something that is that major corporations are ready for. Generally, they like to do talking through like Q&As or specific panels or through the community team, whereas he was very much a, let's talk, you and me. So that was frustrating because he wanted to have more direct interaction with the community. Correct. And and Blizzard was not... Before him, Blizzard didn't really talk to the community like that at all. And then after him, they've gotten better, like they will sit and talk with the community, but it's a lot of it is through these structured... Uh, like just yesterday, they had a developer Q&A where Ian uh, Hazakastas, who is the current director, sort of answers questions the community team has picked out for him. Yeah, they've they do that with Hearthstone where they'll have the streams or they'll have the the very carefully curated community events. Uh, there have been times where Ben Brode did the the, the AMA. But yeah, you're totally right. They Blizzard has always been has always kept its developers at a little bit of a remove uh, versus some other companies uh, who have been pretty good about putting people in front of people. And it, I think it's just that their community is so huge; it's almost kind of impossible to interact with them directly. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. And I also get the feeling that. There are some people, I don't think people realize when we do interviews, usually there's a PR person in the room and some interviewees are more difficult for the PR to sort of wrangle in and keep tight. And I get the feeling from talking to him that Greg Street is one of those folks who, who can somehow start saying something before PR can stop him. I found it interesting, uh, a few things I didn't know. I didn't realize that World of Warcraft was being developed concurrently with Warcraft 3. I always thought that World of Warcraft kind of started afterward, but I suppose it kind of makes sense that those two would ultimately share things and follow seamlessly on from one another. Yeah, I uh, I didn't entirely realize that, and I didn't realize there was a game before World of Warcraft, so Pardo revealed in there that basically after StarCraft, one team went off to develop what 
eventually became Warcraft 3. They actually, uh, I didn't put that in there, but the story was they were making a more of an RPG called Warcraft Lord of the Clans. And oh, that was the adventure game. Right. And then that got funneled into what Warcraft 3 became. Yes. At the same time, this they other did a, team... did something similar with StarCraft 2 with uh, Nova. Right. Yeah, because they funneled the stuff from Ghost into that, but as you were saying. So the second team was working on another game that no one... I, I don't know what that other game was. He, he didn't mention any specifics about that. In, in the flip side of Greg Street, Rob Pardo is the opposite way. He is very much a keep everything close to the vest and try not to let too much out. Very nice guy, though. But So they were working on another game. It didn't go anywhere. And then when they needed something else to do, that's when World of Warcraft sort of started. I always thought it was particularly interesting that Warcraft 3 was already trending towards sort of being an MMORPG slash RPG, and then when there was a giant backlash, they went back to the more classical RTS stuff. Like, Blizzard was already starting to move away from the art, jumping off the RTS train as early as 2001, which kind of bums me out, because I like RTS a lot, but, and God, uh, God, if only we could get a, a Warcraft 4, that would be amazing, but alas, I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> No, I don't think it is either, because I get the feeling that if they wanted to do a Warcraft 4, they'd still want that storytelling aspect in there, and World of Warcraft sort of covers that, so they're if just... If they did a Warcraft 4, I bet it would be like a Skyrim or Witcher 3-style RPG, where it's more single-player, and it's more of a straight-up RPG than it is an RTS, because I think that Blizzard, from what I've been able to gather... Blizzard has decided that StarCraft is the RTS franchise and Warcraft is an RPG franchise. Yeah, I definitely get that feeling as well, especially since StarCraft always had that strong uh, competitive aspect uh, for a very long time in Korea and then other places. Uh, and so Warcraft I, always had much more of a, a lore-driven kind of aspect to it. I mean, uh, Warcraft 3 competition was big in China, but... The, I feel like the online scene was never quite as big here as StarCraft was. Correct. And there might still be a WarCraft thing coming. Uh, while I was doing this, uh, I realized that Tom Chilton, who was uh, a longtime World of WarCraft uh, designer, is still with the company. He's working on an unannounced project. So that could be anything, but it could also be, I mean, given his uh, his association with WarCraft, maybe that's the... Warcraft 4 that you're looking for. Or maybe it's something totally new. I mean, yeah, it could definitely Blizzard be has something had good totally luck uh, being able to, you know, create Overwatch, but uh, Titan was supposed to be their big thing, and then that ultimately became a shooter, which is another interesting story, especially if uh, Noclip did a great job with that. But um, okay, uh, the other thing that I found pretty interesting was that they kind of see Mists of Pandera as a mistake. Uh, I think. They, from when I talked to them, so the community definitely for when it came out, and probably for the beginning of that launch, the community saw Mist of Pandaria as a misstep in what World of Warcraft was. They didn't, like, the Pandaren race was sort of a joke, and they felt that it was leaning on an aesthetic that probably didn't fit with World of Warcraft, so, for a long time, things, like, the community sort of turned against Mr. Pandaria. 
And at this point now, people sort of look back and are like, oh, no, that was a, actually a really great expansion overall. Uh, we we just sort of like misjudged it. And so when I, I talked to them, I asked them, I was like, how does it feel when you guys were releasing this and you sort of realize, oops, uh, we've sort of like they really loved it. And I, I think fans eventually got to that same place. And on that same page, but when they released it, I think they weren't prepared for that backlash. And it sort of, uh, I think Hazakasta said, he was like, no, it felt terrible. And that's one of the things with ongoing development is that sometimes you can work for on something for years, like one or two, three years. And everyone inside the team is in line with what it is, but you don't really know what the fan reception is going to be. So I, I think they were... They were really hurt by what ended up happening when Mr. Pandaria first came out. Yeah, I mean, that's always rough because you throw your heart and soul into a, the development of a game and then everybody turns on it and calls it trash because the internet, right? So Right, and, and Mr. Pandaria was actually when I, I didn't put that in there, but that, that was when I sort of dipped in my wild wow love at the same time. I came to that expansion sort of towards in the middle of its patch cycle. So I, I played Cataclysm and I was sort of waning and then I sort of dipped out of Pandaria and came back. And then Warlords of Draenor came out. And I think Warlords of Draenor was the, uh, as I put in the article, it's the opposite of Mr. Pandaria, sort of in con concept and sort of execution. And I think the reason people look back fondly on Mr. Pandaria is because of Warlords of Draenor. Oh, interesting, because they liked how light and fun uh, Mists of Pandera was. Yeah, and the story was there, and for Warlords of Draenor, they're actually, they sort of enter, entered into probably, I'd say like 12 to, probably like 12 to 15 months of not much content, whereas Mist was very content rich and there was a lot of interesting storytelling being done and I, I the design the design of the entire uh mists area was just it was beautiful it's just a beautiful looking set of maps and warlords of draenor was kind of dark and dingy and uh like it wasn't bad work it's just not an aesthetic that i particularly enjoyed so i it, it, yeah it was basically like Mist got better because of warlords in people's mind. So you're playing Battle of Azeroth for right now. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, I like it. Um, I'm currently working my way. So I did the alliance, the entire alliance side of the storyline. Are you alliance the, or horde? Uh, I am horde in my heart. But the last time I started, when I started up for Warlords of Draenor... Everyone that I knew was on Alliance side, so I started up a new character on the Alliance side, and that has been my main for a while. And then for Battle of Azeroth, I went back to my old main character, and I've leveled them up to, to Cap, and now I'm leveling them through Battle for Azeroth. But I, I really miss them. Like, the, uh, the Alliance is just so boring. They're Didn't so... you say that you're a paladin uh, originally as a main Yes, um, so I and was... And their alliance. Well, I, I was a Blood Elf Paladin, so my original main started in Burning Crusade. 
way back in the day. And I had been playing that character straight through as my main character. So when I started on the Alliance, I started up a human paladin. But, like, the humans are so boring. And the Drane are okay, but uh, not really a fan of it. And I'm not a fan of dwarves or gnomes. So all of my paladin options are kind of... Either I don't like it, or it's kind of boring. And then I jumped on my my old main, the Blood Elf Paladin, and the animations are just so nice. I was just like, oh, I miss this so much. I miss this so much. So, so I think going forward, I mean, I have to keep playing the Human Paladin, because that's my farthest character. But if I can get the Horde character to eclipse them in achievements and accomplishments and whatnot... I think I may stick with Horde. My favorite character in the Warcraft universe is Sylvanas, so uh, I, I I tend to gravitate toward Undead myself, um, even though the characters often tend to be a little bit gross. Yeah, Sylvanas, that is that has been the actual big... The big controversy. Yeah, the big controversy this time around. Her... Some of her actions, it, it feels like they are sort of setting her up for the same... F- fall that happened to Garish Hellscream, which was two Horde Warchiefs ago um, in Mists and Warlords. So, uh, Well, you don't want to mess with Sylvanas because she is a very popular character from what I've been able to gather. She is, she is, but I, I, I get the feeling that they're sort of setting him, her up for a fall. I mean, maybe they can pull out of that nosedive. It's entirely possible. I mean, they, they, they went back in Legion and rehabilitated Illidan, who was the last boss, so to speak, of Burning Crusade. So, if they can fix Illidan and make him semi-heroic, somewhat anti-heroic, they could probably fix Sylvanas. It's it's just not it's not looking good right now. So if. Uh, okay, so for people who have been taking a long break from World of Warcraft, what's the single biggest thing from Battle of Azeroth that should get them back in? Depends on how long the break has been. If if you're talking like Wrath of the Lich King, I'd say... Well, I mean, that's a totally different game now, right? Yeah, and and that's the thing. Every time they, they do a new expansion, the game evolves and shifts with the time. And that's why it still remains uh, pretty successful to this day. Let's say they ducked out after Mists of Pandera. Cool. Uh, then probably the biggest change for you would be World Quest or the new Island Expeditions. World Quests are a set of small quests, sort of once you reach in-game and level cap, that allow you to keep playing the game on a day-to-day basis to get rewards, to get reputation. And then Island Expeditions is their new system, which is like scenarios, which they introduced in Mists, where uh, three random people, any class, there's no like composition requirements or anything, come together, and then they drop onto an island to find Azerite, and there is a competing team of the opposite faction if you're doing it PVE, you can select different difficulties for the AI team of three. Uh, but there are, there are also, I don't know if they're in yet. I think there will be in, uh, no, it is in at PVP, uh, Island expeditions that allow two different teams of three to sort of fight to reach 
the Azerite cap. It's it's a fun little competitive mode, and uh, I, I, I found I'm it pretty boring, it. actually. Oh, you didn't like it? I didn't like it very much. It's I don't like that that kind of like race to gather the thing <laughs> type type uh, modes. But what about for people who are brand new to World of Warcraft? Strange as that might be, is this a good time to jump in? This is a good time to jump in. This is the the beginning of of the war between the two factions, sort of a refocus on that idea. And I believe that the expansion as it goes on will sort of shift to a different big bad. There's sort of hints of old gods. So I think across the course of Battle for Azeroth, you'll get a feeling for what World of Warcraft is as a whole. You'll get the faction thing. You'll get the uh, sort of old gods, like bigger threat. You get two different continents sort of to get that horde and alliance feeling. Their questing is really good. Uh, there are some zones that are better than others. Like I, the first zone that I'm trying on the horde side, Voldoon, is kind of this desert. Uh, aesthetically, it's kind of boring, but I enjoy the quests that are happening in it. And then on the alliance side, Drustvar is just, it has such a great creepy vibe and atmosphere. So it's a well put together expansion. Uh, so far, it's just a matter of seeing how uh, the Horde side ends up. So we can expect a review over on the site pretty soon? Yes, yes. I'm You're like most... 30 hours in, last I checked. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm probably 44. 42 now at this point so it's just Amazing. a matter of finishing the horde side so if you've seen reviews a lot of people probably just uh played to the end of their one side so like legion there weren't two different sides of the story it was just one whole thing so i, I just wanted to get a feeling for both areas sort of from their own storyline since that's how this uh, expansion is compromised or, or composed so Mike is the most thorough man in the business, but <laughs> Mike, you should go, everybody should go check out your definitive inside history of World of Warcraft over on the site. It's a hell of a read. It's like 58 minutes. It's amazing, but you can kind of chunk it out really nicely and read through the entire thing. It's a fascinating, fascinating journey that this game has undergone. And of course, check out your review of Battle for Azeroth on the site as well. Um, and we will see you at PAX West next week. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you later. All right, we're back. And I guess we usually do this thing where we go, yeah, and this is top, this is number 17 on our top 25 RPG countdown and see if you can recognize this one. Well, I mean, I already revealed that this game is Deus Ex, but listen to the clip anyway. appointment to FEMA should be finalized within the week. I've already discussed the matter with the senator. I take it he was agreeable? He didn't really have a choice. Has he been infected? Oh yes, most certainly. When I mentioned that we could put him on the priority list for the Ambrosia vaccine, he was so willing it was almost pathetic. This play, the rioting is intensifying to the point where we may not be able to contain it. Why contain it? Let it spill over to the schools and churches. Let the bodies pile up in the streets. In the end, they'll beg us to save them. Yep, the clip is from Bob Page, who might be the most evil RPG villain this side of the Koch brothers, Nadia. I mean, this guy is evil. He spends the first 
oh, I don't know, five minutes, five, ten minutes of the game, basically saying how he's going to let all the poor people die. Oh. And oh. he's going to uh, become a god because being a billionaire isn't enough. Yeah, uh, this RPG sounds very topical for it. <laughs> Just a little bit. It's extremely topical, very heavy on conspiracy theories, looking into uh, cybernetic implants and everything, uh, billionaires run amok in a crap sack corporatist world. I mean, it really is quite topical, I think. Yeah, and it's like stuff like that back when, I think uh, Deus Ex is what, 2000, isn't it? So even back then, it seemed a little bit outlandish, but boy, howdy, it ain't outlandish now. Get this. Back in 2000, it could not include the World Trade Center in the skybox because they didn't have enough memory, so they decided to say that it was destroyed in a terrorist attack. Yikes. Yeah, that's pretty intense. So, yeah, I mean, Deus Ex came out in 2000, considered one of the best PC RPGs of all time, Mm -hmm. uh, was one of the really influenced a lot of RPGs that came after it. Uh, I would say Mass Effect pulled some from it. Right. Uh, Alpha Protocol definitely pulled from some of it. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, which is also on this list, pulled from some of it. It is one of the, it's not the earliest example, but it is one of the earlier examples of a PC RPG that was kind of an action game, kind of a Mm first-person shooter, but had heavy RPG elements and this is the thing that i find really interesting about this game nadia deus ex came out like seven years after doom i mean you think about the jump from doom to deus ex that is a wild jump that is and i i actually love just kind of looking back at games like that that take that massive jump from like Gosh, even thinking about Super Mario Brothers compared to Super Mario Brothers 3 and just those huge jumps that would occur from time to time, those are pretty special. I mean, think about where were we seven years ago in terms of games? I mean, yeah, the 360 and the PS3 were still a thing, but they weren't that different from where we are now. No, no. uh, You didn't see... Nowadays, you don't see so many of those jumps anymore, which is um, not saying they don't exist, but you don't see them nearly as much. You can play Skyrim on your toaster now. I mean... (laughs) Probably Canon printer, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and Skyrim came out seven years ago. Dark Souls just, <laughs> Dark Souls is coming out on the Switch. We're on the point now where games that came out seven years ago aren't that different, ultimately, from the games that are coming out today. It's no. Just the games that are coming out today are in 4K. Maybe they have a few new interesting ideas, but there's a reason that we see Sony remakes and HD remasters. Right. But back in, 19, back in 2000, I mean, the difference between Doom a game, a run-and-gun first-person shooter that did not have any true 3D elements. Mm-hmm. It was a 2.5D game. Yeah, up it was kind of like Deus a X, perspective. A hardcore RPG. I mean, the, the leap is pretty enormous. So, uh, so this was the 90s, Nadia. And while you were playing the Super Nintendo and focusing on JRPGs, PCs were really going through a golden age of RPGs. They were, yeah, which I, I admittedly missed a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, Bioware had really started to come into its own at this time. Uh, Interplay was still clinging on, um, Mm -hmm. and you have Black Isle Studios making their games. And over at Origin, uh, they were still cranking out Ultima games. I mean, you had Ultima Underworld, and you continued on to System Shock. And we had Thief, which was not an RPG, but ultimately heavily influenced uh, what happened with Deus Ex. And then uh, you had Deus Ex, and a lot of 
those games were responsible were came from a guy named Warren Spector. Mm-hmm. Warren Spector nowadays I, I think he's been a little out of the public eye a little bit. I mean he did Epic Mickey, uh, but back in the nineties he made some of some of the greatest PC games ever made. Yeah, he did. I actually met him. Oh he did. I he did, seems actually. like a really nice guy. He's a very, very nice guy, very, very passionate about games, extremely passionate about Disneyland uh, and Disney World. Uh, but he's a, a little bit strange, but in that really kind of genius way. Um, very nerdy kind of way. Yeah, exactly. I, I, can see why, I can see why he would make such an influential game, basically. What was the name of the, the second banana to Steve Jobs? Uh, y- you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> I know exactly who you're talking He's about. He's a very famous programmer guy. And I can't remember his name, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know that I'm that, uh, I, I'm starting to forget names. This is terrible. <laughs> Even very <laughs> very famous names. Anyway, he reminds me a little of him. A uh-huh. guy who is a consummate nerd, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, I would go as far as to say it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked on the Wing Commander series, which is the... Oh, I didn't know that. One of the pillar space combat games of the early 90s. It is, and yeah. Even in, uh, it seems to me that Warren Spector has always had a thing for gameplay choices and being able mm-hmm. to do what you want. E- even in Wing Commander 3, you could influence the course of the war based on how you were doing in that game. Uh, ultimately, in the end, if you did well enough, you would be able to uh, blow up the Kilrathi homeworld by doing a Death Star trench run, essentially, and dropping a bomb into a cannon. So that was interesting. Oh, no, those poor kitty cats. Uh, if you looked at System Shock, uh, some things that you would see from Deus Ex is the way the expert way that he would use audio and everything, and uh, with mm-hmm. the, the character of Shodan. Oh, and the infamous, yeah, the infamous showdown. The infamous showdown. One of the one of the really interesting first early uses of audio in gameplay to really set the mood and set mm-hmm. the atmosphere. And then continuing on to Thief, which was one of the earliest examples of a proper stealth game. And would really, that game was special because it lets you kind of decide how to tackle a situation. And it put a premium on efficiently and quickly and smartly tackling a problem rather than just going in guns blazing. Right. And Deus Ex borrowed heavily from that. So, Nadia, Warren Spector had a really interesting list of RPG rules. Yes, which I've actually seen that list, yeah. Yeah, which he called kind of a a mission statement for the game. Mm -hmm. And I I thought it would be kind of cool to go through this, okay? Yes. Uh, So, number one, always show the goal. And mm-hmm. what that means is they should see their next goal before they can achieve it. And I, I always think about Jedi Knight, where uh, there is this really phenomenal string of levels where you start at, in a city and you can see a big tower in the distance, right? Right. And I then, love that sort of thing. Yeah. And then you continue on into the city. You get to the base of the tower. There's an Imperial base to fight through. You go up the tower. At the top of the tower is a dark Jedi to fight. And then at the top of the tower... You're on a rooftop, and then eventually you escape from that rooftop. And I always right. just thought, that was such a great example of really making every level feel interconnected. Yeah, I, I actually think that's a, a really great thing. You don't see it so much. Uh, I think that maybe we have too much of an over-reliance on, you know, those famous sort of uh, arrows that show you where to go next. Yeah, I, I think older games had to be fairly seamless. Um, right. I think we've become... A little too 
reliant on the the waypoint marker. I actually mm-hmm. start, I actually find myself getting mad when I don't have a waypoint marker. What do yeah. I do next? Hold Same. my hand. I want to go. Same. I get very anxious if I don't have a waypoint marker. So I'm very much to blame for that sort of thing. But I I do love games that. Um, I seem to remember Dragon Quest Eight being one of the first games that really let me feel that way. Like I would see something off in the distance, and even if it wasn't even part of the main story, I'd be like, "What is that? I want to go see it." And more times often than not, it it was part of the story. So I thought I thought that was actually pretty excellent. I mean, there was a very famous instance of that in Dark Souls as well, where you come out of emerge from a dark and very difficult dungeon, and then you get a really phenomenal vista as you look mm-hmm. out onto, I believe it's on Orlando, and you just, it's a moment of peace and it's a moment of quiet, but also you're looking upon your next objective. Right, right. Even Ninja Gaiden, in a way, kind of lets you do that when it had the famous cutscene where it kind of yes. goes do, 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 you know what I mean? Tower or whatever it was, yeah. One of my favorite NES moments, to be perfectly honest. Um, his second one, Problems Not Puzzles. I'm looking at you, God of War. It's an optical <laughs> course, not a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> That's a good but, point. That's a good point. Game situation should make logical sense. Mm-hmm. Number three, multiple solutions. This is yes. a big one. Yes. Oh, God, yes. This is where Thief comes in, and it's a big part of Deus Ex as well. No forced failure. Failure isn't fun. Getting knocked unconscious and waking up in a strange place or finding yourself standing over dead bodies while holding a smoking gun can be cool story elements, but situations the player has no chance to react to are bad. JRPGs do that a lot. Yeah? Is there a like, particular instance that you can think of? Oh, I, I mean, duh. I mean, fighting bosses that you can't beat. Exactly. The, the forced failure bosses, which uh, are, God, they're still everywhere in games these days, especially, like I said, JRPGs. Um, and as he said, use sparingly. They can be really cool, but the, the keyword there is sparing. I find it annoying because I'll get to a boss and I'll go, is this a forced failure boss? Exactly. Is this a boss that I, oh, no, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, without spoiling too much, I will say that those persist in, in, in the new Dragon Quest, but you're kind of told, kind of telegraphed right away that you cannot win against this dude. So relax. Don't go spending all your valuable items, which you forgot to put in your inventory anyway. So don't worry about it. Number five, it's the character, stupid. Role playing is about interacting with characters in a variety of ways. And I don't want to keep slagging on jrpgs but they tend to be pretty bad about that because NBCs are sort of props in a lot of these games they are but uh it's one of those things i find a little bit charming about uh about jrpgs yeah i mean they ultimately are the villagers are there to tell you where to go next right i mean and but lest lest we want to say that like western rpgs are inherently better i mean in Skyrim, yeah, you have characters who are wandering around the world doing things, but they're almost never interesting. They're usually just yeah. dirt farmers. <laughs> and they're usually glitched out. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> which is great, which is funny, don't get me wrong. But have you ever, do you ever watch um, The Amazing World of Gumball? What's that? It, it's a very cute little cartoon, uh, kind of twisted uh, from Cartoon Network. It's, they have a whole episode that's dedicated to kind of like JRPG tropes, and it's pretty funny. You should, you should watch it sometime. Number six, players do, NPCs watch. It's no fun to watch an NPC do something cool. If it's a cool thing, let the player do it. Yeah, let us stab Aerith. Come on. If it's a boring or mundane thing, don't even let the player think about it. Let an NPC do it. Games get harder. Players get smarter. Make sure game difficulty escalates as players become more accustomed to the interface and more familiar with the game world. Mm -hmm. Make sure player rewards make players more powerful as the game goes on and becomes more difficult. Never throw players into a situation their skills and smarts make frustratingly difficult to overcome. (laughs) Number eight, pat your players on the back. 
Have you uh, have you patted your player on the back today? Said good job, good job. I mean, you gotta have that dopamine uh, blast. You really, really do. And of course, mobile games are infamous for that. I know. I'm playing Fire Emblem Heroes as I talked about last week, and that Still, game eh? is just one long dopamine blast. <laughs> oh my god. Um, number nine, Think 3D. An effective 3D level cannot be laid on graph paper. Paper maps may be a good starting point. A 3D game map must take into mm-hmm. account things over the player's head and under the player's feet. I uh, That is the old uh, overused piece of gaming jargon, verticality. I have never heard that before. That's a great word. You've never heard of verca- verticality? No. I'm losing my verticality. <laughs> It's a it's a piece of jargon or it's a buzzword that people use when they're talking about a game that does a really great job of utilizing interesting architecture, 3D kind of uh, uh, architecture and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I was just playing Sekiro last week. Great, amazing looking action game. Phenomenal, truly. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really excited to have that game kick my ass until it's blue, but... <laughs> After you fight your way through this big Japanese castle, which is a really interesting place to explore, you find this cannon, canyon, mm-hmm. and you just look down into this massive gorge, right? And cool. you have to start working your way down this gorge. And as you do, this giant snake comes out, and you have to basically either be stealthy or really move fast, because that snake going to kill you. <laughs> wow, that sounds pretty amazing, actually. I'm it is amazing. Oh my god, Sekiro is so good, Nadia. I love it. it. Yeah, your impressions seem like, it, like a lot of fun. Oh, yes, but it also kicked my ass. <laughs> of course, well. And then number 10, and this is the most important for Deus Ex, think interconnected. Maps in a 3D game world feature mm-hmm. massive interconnectivity. Tunnels that go from point A to point B are bad. Loops and areas with multiple entrances and exit points are good. Mm-hmm. Actually, one game that did that quite well for its time was Mega Man Legends. The really? entirety of the game uh, what it took place in uh, a kind of an underground labyrinth that was all interconnected, and you could like get from one end to the other just like going through these tunnels, and it was pretty fascinating. I still prefer Legends 2, which doesn't really have an intercon- interconnected tunnel system, but... Um, yeah, I I thought it was a good example. So Nadia, Warren Spector got an opportunity that very few game developers ever get. He got to make his dream game with an unlimited budget mm-hmm. and all the resources he wanted. He had carte blanche, no interference, no no notes whatsoever. And he decided that he was going to dust off a project that he'd been kicking around for quite a while. Mm-hmm. It was called Troubleshooter. And Troubleshooter was a game that was kind of supposed to be like Die Hard, right? Right. He had been working on sci-fi and fantasy, and he he was tired of that. He wanted to do something that's more set in the real world. Right. A more modern period. And, of course, he ends up making a cyberpunk game because ultimately doing a game, an RPG in the real world is kind of hard. <laughs> it is. Yeah, very few have done it. It would be kind of interesting to do, like, commuter RPG. Try to manage your sanity as you get from – as you – complete a 24-hour day oh man it's like depression quest i suppose yeah i guess it is play with your calculator and try not to go crazy yeah exactly so he uh john romero approached warren specter john romero had started ion storm fairly Mm -hmm. infamously and john romero was (laughs) working on daikatana john romero had a a load of money he had opened up a studio in Dallas, Texas that had glass windows all around. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, which apparently was like just an oven in that place. It was I insane. bet. He was a couple years out from making people his bitch. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he goes up to Warren Spector and says, come on over, make your dream game. And Warren Spector said, all right. And he brought in some people from Origin. um, And he proceeds to make, uh, start work on Deus Ex. And the game that ultimately resulted uh, was groundbreaking in many, many respects. I I just want to set the kind of the stage for people I think we already said that we were only a few years removed from Doom. Mm -hmm. And think about this. In 1998, a couple of games came out. There was Thief and Metal Gear Solid. And all of a sudden, stealth was a thing, right? Like, we had never really had a quote-unquote stealth game like what we had in Metal Gear Solid. This idea of playing hide-and-seek with intelligent AI enemies. It was really groundbreaking and cool back then. Yeah, I mean, the original Metal Gear had it, but uh, even, it, number one, it wasn't 3Ds, and number two, the AI kind of sucked, so Metal yeah. Gear Solid was, like, really revolutionary for its time. It was. I mean, just the idea in Metal Gear Solid of leaving footprints and having the AI go, huh? Uh-huh. What's this? What's going on? I mean, that was really cool. Yeah, so, it was. Stealth wasn't the completely overused, overplayed thing that was <laughs> happening at that time. Yes. And uh, so consequently, any stealth game was extremely novel and extremely cool mm-hmm. for its time. And Deus Ex was very much that thing. Right. And it, it was a game that you would start playing. And if you, your first instinct, because at this time, like, well, what, what kind of RPGs are, uh, first-person shooters are out there? Uh, mm-hmm. Games uh, like Unreal Tournament. Right. Right. Games that you go out and you run and gun. Uh, Deus, you, 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 the first thing you want to do is you got a gun, you're going to run out, you start shooting enemies. That's not a good idea, Nadia. No. <laughs> Definitely not a run and gun game, is it? No, I mean, you run, you go out, you start shooting enemies, you die. Exactly. <laughs> and so that was an adjustment. I remember the first time I ever played this game, by the way, like another novel thing, you're a cyborg. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember playing through the tutorial and getting my legs blown off. And <laughs> so literally crawling. They were non-functional, so I was just crawling toward the objective. It, it was like the Terminator. It was not a thing that I was used to in games. It was a really right. novel and cool experience. Did they did they fix you once you completed the tutorial? Yes, thank God. Okay, good, good. You yes. got a new pair of legs. Got it. Mama's got a new pair of legs. Um the other thing that was really cool about this game was that there was a sense of consequences. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the first missions that you do is a hostage situation, and it's ostensibly kind of a test, but it's also a real-life situation. And uh, you can go and free these hostages in any number of ways. Negotiation, uh, finding unique entrances, running and gunning and uh, destroying them. There's a hostage situation where... Uh, you can blow up a train station. That's a good solution. Is it? It's not a good solution. Is it really? It's actually a bad solution, but it yeah. is a solution. It is a solution. Yes. So the terrorists, uh, like, there are consequences for doing that, but you of can course. do it. And having these multiple solutions to one problem mm-hmm. was very cool and very novel for its time. And it's still rather, like, good now. Yeah, in yeah. In my opinion. I think so. A lot of games don't give you actual genuine consequences and multiple solutions that's because they're hard to program in they really are like i don't blame them variables right right yeah uh it was a pretty in-depth rpg you could put points to all sorts of different things uh when it came to the actual shooting the shooting had an rng element to it so if you Mm -hmm. pointed your gun at a guy's head and pulled the trigger 
the bullet did have a chance to miss, which not everybody loved, but mm-hmm. I mean, it was, I mean, it was genuine, right? I mean, it was an RPG in that respect. Right. And you can, you can whiff it in RPGs, that's for sure. Do you, I, I'm curious, do you think that's a good feature? Because I think that eventually everybody complained about it mercilessly in Mass Effect and BioWare ultimately changed it. But right. in so doing, they also turned Mass Effect into an action game and right. fundamentally changed its character from that point on. I honestly don't have a problem with it, um, especially I think of a game like Fallout, where you are just usually a regular old vault dweller, and you know here you have a gun, and you're using it to to kill mutants. There's a certain amount of realism and not being able to get every single damn shot off, even if the VAT system gives you like, hey, here's a 99% chance, and like you know that 0.1% chance, you know the bullet just goes flying off to wherever, you know that's kind of silly. But I I don't have a problem with you know just screwing up like that once in a while i think it, it adds a, an element of uh, of realism to be honest i always thought that uh steam world heist had a fairly good solution where you had to manage your your guns had stats you had to right. manage everything but when it came to aiming your gun you had to do that manually yeah that was a great game i want to see another one ah steam world heist was so good i would kill for steam world heist 2 on switch Yes, me too. Uh, hopefully it'll happen. Come on, image reform. Listen to us. Do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, but it, so in Deus Ex, that, that was a thing. Um, and uh, there were even just little touches, right? Like the mm-hmm. fact that if you went to the women's bathroom, uh, you would get yelled at. <laughs> get <laughs> it was a funny moment, right? But yeah. then that would trip a flag where your boss would chew you out as well. <laughs> What the hell are you doing in the woman's bathroom? Get out of there. I mean, that's really cool. Yeah, I, it is I actually think that's really pretty cool. awesome. Another element of Deus Ex was it really loved the conspiracy theories. And, yeah. And when I say conspiracy theories, I don't mean like Alex Jones, oh, the Pizzagate and the things yeah. like that. No, I, I'm talking about like Area 51, Roswell, uh, everything that you saw in X-Files. Were you a big X-Files fan, Nadia? Uh, I was so-so, but I know exactly what you mean. Like, everything was true, and I want to believe, and, you know, it, was, it wasn't, it was like, blatantly true, but it was it was pretty true, you know? Hey, hey, look at over here, you know? Yeah. I I, I think that element, back in, back in the 90s, it had a kooky element. Like, people who yeah. believed in that stuff were kind of portrayed as weirdos and goofs. Like, I think the Ur example, maybe, is in Independence Day, you had Russ, right, who was kidnapped... Guy kidnapped by aliens and everybody treats him as a, as a nut job right mm-hmm. and of course he was actually con- he's right he's like i've been saying it for 10 damn years i was right apparently warren specter's wife was really in x-files and he was like oh that's fun let's, let's incorporate that <laughs> yeah back when conspiracy theories were actually just kind of kooky and kind of fun and now they're just like oh okay um well yeah, social media Social media and YouTube and such have made it so that people take that stuff really legitimately serious, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, once people start going about the world being flat, I just check right the hell out. Well, I mean, the fact that you can go on YouTube right now and probably find a 60-minute video explaining uh, why George W. Bush did 9-11, why Newtown was a false flag operation, mm-hmm. and we didn't land on the moon, and there's a deep state... And by the way, there is a child pornography ring underneath a pizzeria. Yeah. That's when it starts to get a little dark, I think. And because people are like, watch it and go, and if they're not thinking about it too much, they come out and go, yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. I totally get that. 
and you have publications that are presenting themselves as legit and being given similar credence that are that are peddling these completely insane theories. So it, it is a little dark to see this kind of stuff. Like I, yeah. I think, man, yeah, p- conspiracy theories sure did get dark, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> real fast. Although, I guess they're always a little bit dark. You know, when you're Jewish, you hear yeah. all about them and how you're responsible for them. Oh, yeah, no, true. And the Illuminati are real in this game, too. And right. I think that uh, Jewish people would be uh, kind of wince when you might mention the John Birch Society, for example, which exactly. has always penalized the idea of one world government, uh, the Illuminati and the Jews are running everything. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, I can't even like, you know, get up half the time and <laughs> suddenly I'm running the world. Okay. <laughs> I can't drive, but I can run the world. All right. Yeah. So uh, another thing that Deus Ex did really well. So there was this character Icarus, right? Mm-hmm. And this Icarus is an AI. And the first thing, first time you ever encounter Icarus, you just see this giant eye and they go, I am now in control of your systems. That's really creepy. That does sound kind of creepy. Icarus was extremely effective piece of storytelling, way ahead of its time in 2000, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. I, I, I want to put this in context for you, Nadia. We were five years removed from having voice acting in games at all. Wow. That is, that yeah. is pretty crazy, actually. I mean, we think about when the PlayStation came out and we just started mm-hmm. having voice acting and how... Usually like, bad voice acting. Oh, I mean, and yeah, trust me, the voice acting in Deus Ex isn't very good either. <laughs> <laughs> Very over the top. 2000s. Uh, Deus Ex is one of those games that had a lot of philosophy, had a lot of really interesting things to say, which it accomplished in very long, drawn-out monologue conversations between the different characters. Mm-hmm. It was very much like Babylon 5 in that regard, and yet, as a teenager who was discovering those concepts for the first time, I kind of ate it up. Yeah, I could understand that. I, I thought... Man, this is so deep. It's kind of like Evangelion in that regard, too. Exactly. I was about to say, like, that was a really uh, an awakening for, for people our age back then. Like, wow, this is so deep and, and, you know, philosophical. And Wow, this is so deep. Anime is the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, The Matrix had come out in 1999. And oh, really Jesus, right. The, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Wachowskis had played uh, Deus Ex a year later and went, wow, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yes. But at the same time, like, it really does delve into a lot of interesting topics like privacy and mm-hmm. the impact of cybernetic enhancements and everything, uh, social media, that are important subjects of our time. And Right. And think about where we were back then. We, video games were a maturing medium, mm-hmm. and like, and having people talk about actual issues was revelatory back in 2000. I mean, we were yeah. just a few years removed from freaking Mario doinking people on the head and people <laughs> ripping spines out of uh, their... That was the height of the video Save game the discourse. Princess. Save yeah. the princess. Well, we did have some good RPGs by then, but yeah, um, even those RPGs didn't tend to tackle like issues that still affect us like to this very day. Like if the We were just talking about the gap between rich and poor. Like That's a very big thing in Deus Ex. Yeah, and, and then just a year later, Metal Gear Solid 2 comes out, a, a game that had a very, very similar palette and ultimately tackled a lot of different things. And another thing that I find interesting is Deus Ex was one of the first games to introduce non-lethal solutions to things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't get away with killing, failing to kill everybody, but like 
you could use a tranquilizer dart. The interesting thing, though, is in Metal Gear Solid, if you shoot somebody with a tranquilizer dart, they just go, they go, (laughs) and then fall over, right? And then you can drag their body around. In Deus Ex, they'll go, ah! And they'll run around and then they'll hit alarms and such. So, <laughs> which makes sense because it takes a while for trying to get to you and something sharp, you know, hits you in your neck or something. You're going to be screaming and running. Yeah, I would. Have, if I'm standing there as a guard and suddenly a dart hits me, I'm freaking out, man. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I, I'm not just going. What the wrong. hell? What? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Metal Gear Solid tends to get a lot of credit for the non-lethal takedowns uh, things, but I mean, Deus Ex was there. Was there a year ahead of time from mm-hmm. Metal Gear Solid 2? So, uh, so taken together, Deus Ex, even though you look at it now and you go, hmm, it looks pretty dated, it really holds up in terms of the, especially the way it told its story. I'm mean, not right. monologues, but its expert use of audio, especially when it comes to Icarus. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the mechanics, like the non lethal stuff, the fact that you could solve problems in so many different and interesting ways uh it was a sprawling fascinating story that you could uh have a lot of influence over with multiple endings and it just it it was like i said very it was revelatory it was very influential at the time pc gamer named it the best pc game ever made in 2011 wow so yeah that's actually a pretty high honor and given how influential it was i could i could see that being the case Yes. I mean, today, like, you look at it and you go, "Uh," but it still has a very healthy modding community, Nadia. Yeah, Um, yeah. A pretty cool one is, um, so you weren't here for the Vampire the Masquerade uh, discussion, but in Vampire the Masquerade, one of the classes you can play is the Malkavians, and the Malkavians are kind of schizophrenic. Basically, they think they'll see things that aren't there, they're... I mean, there's an argument, a protracted argument with a stop sign at a certain point, that kind of thing. (laughs) Somebody did that with Deus Ex. They made a mod for Deus Ex, which Vampire the Masquerade follows pretty heavily on from Deus Ex. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody made a Malkavian mod for Deus Ex where, like, things will be talking to you. You'll be seeing crazy things that aren't happening. It's a hysterical and amazing mod, and you have to That's pretty intense. uh, (laughs) Has there been, like, a a remaster of any kind? No, sadly. Mm -hmm. I, I think... The closest to what you would call a remaster is Deus Ex Human Revolution, which came out in 2011. Very well-liked game, Nadia. People Mm -hmm. really enjoy that one, but it's a lot more straightforward than the original Deus Ex. And the thing that that stands out to me about Deus Ex is it was a very ambitious game. And often we talk about a game being ambitious and not quite meeting its ambitions. Uh, Right. A great example of that would be Vampire the Masquerade. Deus Ex, by and large, met its ambitions. It was the game that it wanted to be, which is pretty mm-hmm. amazing, given what a shit show Iron Storm was. And it ended up <laughs> yes. being hugely influential. It is still very interesting to go back and study today. And I absolutely think it should be on this top 25 RPG mm-hmm. list, which is why it's here. Yes, yeah, it earns its spot. Hooray, okay. Hooray. We did it. We talked Confetti. about Deus Ex. That is number 17 on the top 25 RPG countdown. Hopefully this one doesn't get erased. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're safe, knock on wood. Okay, Nadia, as usual, we are going to be doing the mailbag. And last week we talked about the things that we miss the most in RPGs, and we got a number of nice tweets about that. Uh, somebody said that they were going to try and put an overworld in their indie game. 
which is oh. kind of cool. Wow, that's that's ambitious. Good for you. We're Good being work. influential, Nadia. Wow, I never thought I'd be influential, so here we are. There you go, Mom. I showed Ro- you. Robert Smith says, Your chat last time about how much we miss sprite work got me thinking about Bastion and Supergiant Games. I'm a big fan of their lush art styles and recently recommended Bastion to my friend Kieran the Art Thief. You'll remember his email from a few weeks ago, and he enjoyed it too. Supergiant have various RPG elements pretty liberally in all of their games, but do you think they'll ever make it up a straight, balls-out RPG? Maybe budgetary or market circumstances make it less viable for them, but I, for one, would love to play something along the lines of, I, of say, the recent South Park games, with the Supergiant Sheen and Storytelling Nos. Hell, let's throw in customizable parties and overworld to tick a couple more of last week's boxes while we're at it. What does the Blood God think? Well, I mean, I, obviously, I would love a good Supergiant uh, RPG. Yeah, I'd play that in 10 seconds. Bastion is it's not a perfect game, but it's still one of my favorite games just for the presentation itself. Like, I actually got into the game long after everyone else had played it. Um, I think it was resurrected in the discourse again because it came to mobile, and I was writing about mobile games at the time, and I finally got it on Steam, not really knowing what to expect because I hadn't been paying attention. And just the the surprise I had when I realized the whole thing was being narrated as I played, that just blew my mind. I love that game, and the soundtrack is just... I still have it on my iPhone, put it that way. Yeah, talk about an amazing use of narrative. I don't yep. think Supergiant Games will ever make a quote-unquote RPG because RPGs are, even though you have a genre game, genre games that are huge, like RPGs that are extremely mainstream successes, RPGs are still seen as less accessible as than action games. And I think a indie developer that is trying to find a mass audience like Supergiant Games is going to be more inclined to continue with mm-hmm. the approach they are taking, which is using light RPG elements to yeah. spice up the action. And they, they do use those elements to great effect. Um, Transistor, I didn't get to finish it because my computer crapped out, but that's also a, a fantastic game. Indeed. Okay, Max Bebo says, I definitely agree that more RPG should have overworlds to give you that clear scope of how big the world is. Next best alternative are zone transitions that clearly show the landscape of the next area you're essentially teleporting to, like an FF12, so that your immersion mm-hmm. isn't broken by when you end up. Most big-budget RPGs nowadays have the problem of realistically rendering the true relative size of every town and dungeon, which then makes the outdoors traveling section seem small. So they sometimes make those big so big that you either have to run for hours to get from place to place or just teleport fast travel, which then breaks immersion. Our overworlds were a great way to speed up that travel time in the unimportant, boring outdoors so you could get to the story content faster without completely sacrificing the journey. Twelve, as I remember... Uh use that to great effect and it also one thing i really liked about 12 is how much uh certain events could change the overworld like i love the weather system and how everything just completely changed like during the rainy season versus the dry season that was really cool Muchan says dragon quest 8's overworld was such a beauty to explore and better you get to fly above it near the end it really felt like a 3d version of, the, of a snes rpg don't know if dq11 has something like that been trying not the best to look into anything but i do hope they do Always such an amazing feeling, flying over places you've been and going back to revisit them. FF10 was so linear, and when he finally got the airship, it was just menu-based, which was disappointing. Yeah, I think it was one of the biggest bummers ever in FF10 was when you get your airship finally, and it's just like, it's a menu! <laughs> That's Have fun! The point. That's kind of sad. Even, like, the, the first Final Fantasy game gave you that freedom, and that was, like, such a liberating time, and who wants a, who wants a menu-based airship? Come on. 
The challenger says, I miss JRPGs that could be finished in 40 to 60 hours. Nowadays, mm. most are bloated messes that put more emphasis on side quest hunting than moving the story forward, which in turn artificially extends the playtime into the 100-hour mark. Runner-up replayability. No fucking way will I ever replay a 100-hour RPG, no matter how much I adore it. <laughs> Nino Kuni 2 was actually relatively short. It was. Uh, I will give that. It took me, like, I think something between 30 and 40 hours and it felt like a good length for the game yeah of course it was kind of boring but the point is it let itself be that length and i was i was appreciative towards that i feel like i've fair played a fair number of rpgs that are actually relatively short and don't overstay the welcome it's just i mean like near automata is not actually that long it's yeah. just getting all the endings can take a little bit exactly and i think uh, in the same vein chrono trigger is very much the same way where mm. um it's a perfect length, and plus you can make it almost as long as or short as you want versus, like, you know, just going by whichever ending you're going for. Uh, Gamer Law says, 35 to 50 hour RPGs used to be the standard industry standard. Not sure when we arrived at the understanding that every RPG needs to be 100 hours in order to constitute a good value, but I'm all in favor of dispatching it. The 35 hours I spent with the last story on the Wii provided better value than many of the games that have dragged on long past their sensible expiration point. The era of 100-hour-plus RPGs simply means that we either are not seeing games through to their conclusion or we are experiencing fewer of them. Neither benefits fans of the genre. Hmm. That's true. <coughs> Donkey in the Forest says, I still have my Baldur's Gate cloth map and a bunch of old lore information books that came with PC games. The manual for Star Wars Rebellion is probably the thickest. Pretty fun. Well, Overworld's death give me fond memories. What do you all what do you all they would bring to the table now? Games like Monster Hunter World have a world map that lets you fast travel. Tokyo Mirage Sessions hashtag FE have the hub and streets of Tokyo. And yes, I know it's sharp FE. I just naturally just said <laughs> hashtag FE. Have the hub and streets of Tokyo are similar to an overworld linking the different areas and dungeons and has a map for fast travel. Xenoblade 2 is both the map to travel between the various titans and the maps of the individual titans to travel around them. And that game has some scope, yet no true mm. overworld map. It seems like the only games that have overworlds, and mostly those of the past, use them for random encounters. Do you just want more slow walking in between places for pacing? The option to do so? A partially animated world map instead of a static literal one? I'm not arguing against them. I have loved many games with them. I'm just curious if it's only nostalgia or if they could bring something new. I think that the thing with overworld maps is it allows you to do things like fly over them. Right. And do other interesting things. And you do see modern games where you will be able to literally just hop onto a, a mount and fly. I mean, you could do that in World of Warcraft, for example. Yeah. Um, and um, one of my favorite overworlds, actually, is Breath of Fire 3s, which has a very unique sort of isometric overworld that's just like... If you want to get into an encounter, you see an exclamation mark over your head and you can, and that's when you, you press the button and you, you're taken into a battlefield where you can encounter monsters. But otherwise, just kind of like a, a like almost like a game board and wherever you move, you know, you, you might find something interesting, you might find an, a hidden area. I thought it was a really, really well done overworld. It's one of my favorites. I think an overworld these days is something like Witcher 3 where it's a seamless experience. And you're just riding out among the fields and the trees and everything. And if you want to, you can go up to a signpost and fast travel over to wherever the heck you're going. Right. Which is a decent and fine approach. And not everybody wants to spend a lot of time getting from point A to point B. But in a classic RPG, I, I sort of like the idea of the camera pulling way back 
and kind of giving you the feeling that uh, of scope as you're wa- moving from one town to the next. I, yeah. I don't even know that you need to have um, random encounters on the map. I, I no, think Chrono it's Trigger just, doesn't. I think Again. it's just to avoid having to use fast travel, which is immersion breaking. Mm-hmm. And I think that a really clever designer could find ways to hide lots of interesting little extras on the world map. Yeah, there you go. But I think ultimately the over, the original overworld was a kind of a technological uh, a way to make the game feel bigger without having uh, without without while working within the memory constraints. Yeah, and sometimes you got interesting quirks from them, like Final Fantasy One's original uh, Peninsula of Power. Uh, Metman Master says, one thing I miss from clean, classic RPGs, brevity and dialogue. Like, I don't <laughs> mind it so much on CRPGs where the conversations are an extension of the gameplay. But JRPGs picked up a lot more words going from NES to SNES to PS1. And ever since the genre has had serious problems with games that go on and on forever about nothing in particular. <laughs> yeah, that's the story. I agree. It depends. Sometimes, uh, like, you and I were talking about Octopath Traveler, and you didn't like it ultimately, but I really enjoyed it. And I think even Bob Mackey was saying how uh, he finds the stories just really dull. And I, I love them. I love the characters. I had a really good time. And I love, like, just going to every NPC and looking up their life story. That sort of thing just makes me happy. Other things I miss in many JRPGs are choreography. I hate talking portraits as a replacement. They exasperate exacerbate the boredom of overly verbose dialogue that's a more true. a more convincing illusion of freedom remember when you could bust into almost every house in town when the walls between you and go place tended toward the natural broken stuff locked doors guards brutal monsters instead of some asshole party member saying no you can't go place <laughs> i miss that interesting companions ff7 had a dog on fire and an animatronic that is, yeah, cat that's true that's writing a hulked out moogle doll don't tell me that the future of non-pokey like jrpgs is nothing but samey anime people and not being 100 hours it's yeah. true I, I i i will play any rpg that lets you have a dog or an animal or a pet or something in your party yeah i always whenever i have uh, an rpg that lets you play as an animal i will gravitate towards that animal even if they suck like when I play Suikoden 2, it's like, oh, yeah, that griffin is in my party. Oh, yeah, that unicorn is in my party. Yeah, it takes up two slots. I don't care. It's a unicorn. Persona 3 had a dog. Did it really? Yeah, I think their name is Koromaru. Very cute. Aww, yes. Cute. Um, it's a little difficult to use, but once you get the hang of uh, Koromaru, it's uh, it's pretty rad. So, yeah, I, I always, if there's a dog or some kind of animal to put into my party, Tales of Symphonia had a, not Symphonia, Vesperia had a dog as well. That was actually one of my big disappointments about Earthbound. A dog you start smoking with a, dog. a pipe. What the hell is a dog smoking a pipe for? I don't know. Okay, I guess because it can. Well, yeah, true. Earthbound had a dog and then not. Yeah, that was a big letdown for me. That was King. And he was he was like, you know what? This is too dangerous. I'm out. I was like, what kind of a dog are you? You're supposed to follow me into death. Yeah, I mean, instead just hangs out in the house and goes bark. 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 Well, he does talk to you. He talks to Ness. Ness, I guess, can talk to animals. But he mostly says uninteresting things about dog things i suppose i mean if you think about it dogs aren't particularly interesting no they like throwing up tennis balls yeah and then if you decide that you want to talk to dogs or talk to animals in general you got to be careful because you might discover the worldwide conspiracy that's being hatched by squirrels (laughs) those damn squirrels you know squirrels are black here it always freaks people out when they come to southern ontario and they see these giant ass black squirrels it's like yeah they're just 
for some reason, they supplanted the gray squirrel population and the red squirrel population. <laughs> Racist against giant-esque black squirrels. What is the world coming to? Well, they're very successful. I gotta give them that. Yeah, very, very, very successful black squirrels. Um, yeah, no, I we just have gray squirrels here, but it is always nice to see a good uh, a red squirrel. And I've never seen a black squirrel, but I bet they're really cool. They'll take over. They'll take over. <laughs> Stop being racist. <laughs> I'm not being racist. They, they, when I was a kid, there weren't any black squirrels. And then, like, I guess they just got so successful. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Please follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot, Nadia at Nadia Oxford, and Mike at Automatic Zen. And uh, please check out Mike's giant World of Warcraft uh, history. It is really good. No, seriously, it's awesome. Go check it out. Uh, Nadia, later this week, we're going to be at PAX West. Yes, we are. Woo, I got a long flight ahead of me. Yes, you do. Oh, my God. Uh, so on Friday, I'm going to be on a panel. It's going to be with Kind of Funny. We're going to be talking about making a good Superman game, which, uh, good luck with that. And on Saturday, uh, we are going to be doing our Mass Effect panel rep- retrospective that will be at 3 p.m., on the show on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we're doing the changing face of games journalism. The entire U.S. Gamer editorial staff is going to be there. We're going to be out there in force, and uh, we're also going to have Matt Martin from VG247 mm-hmm. there as well, and that will also be at 3 p.m., so please come to the theater. Come join us, and we're, we're also looking to do a little meetup uh, with uh, listeners, readers, fans, etc., and that will be probably about 2 p.m., and you know it's be a pretty informal thing come have a drink with us it'll be fun come say hi okay that's the end of our episode and we'll be back next week and for nadia mike and myself thanks for listening and happy adventuring mm-hmm.